Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Still at large, unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or a series of killings that have, despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Series 2 Episode 9 The Lancashire Ripper Part 1 We return once more to the last quarter of 1988. On the day that interests us, Jaguar launched their troubled XJ220 to much acclaim at the International Motor Show in Birmingham, a sprawling metropolitan city in the West Midlands. The XJ220 was an idea that several of the engineers at Jaguar worked on in their spare time, to mimic the cars of the Le Mans era in the 1950s, with contemporary styling and engineering. It was initially designed with a V12, but certain financial restrictions ended up with Jaguar putting a supercharged V6 in it. However, it was, for a brief time, the fastest production car on the market. Another supercar to be unveiled on the same day, at the same show, was the Ferrari F40, which seems to be an embodiment of the time. Brash, bold, and a tasteless display of excessive wealth. Coffee tables across the country were being graced by a book that would spark a populist wave of renewed interest in the sciences. A Brief History of Time famously only includes one equation. Einstein's E equals MC squared. The author, the late great Dr. Stephen Hawking, explores the physics behind the cosmos and then the current ideas about the universe's beginning using easily accessible charts, illustration and language. The redoubtable doctor unlocks the story of how the universe came to be and how even with the vast leaps in technology and ability, we are still faced with mysteries in the outer reaches of space time and space-time. At the northwestern end of the M6 motorway in the West Midlands, another and very different mystery was beginning to unfold. It was noon on Tuesday the 18th of October when an elderly couple stopped their car on Winnick Lane, Loughton near to Lee. Shortly after leaving their car, and mere metres from the road but behind a hedge on the edge of a farmer's field, they discovered the badly mutilated body of a young woman, although from the remains it was difficult to tell her age initially. She had been killed by two stab wounds to her back, but long, deep lacerations crisscrossed her body, and her killer had attempted to decapitate her. Her killer had removed her breasts, which have never been found. Police were later with the assistance of her grandmother, able to identify the woman as Linda Donaldson, who was 31. 
life for Linda had been hard. She had been raised by her grandmother due to her own mother's complications and problems. Linda had married young at the age of 18 and lived in the Waterloo area of Liverpool. A quiet suburban life on the edge of Merseyside was not for Linda and after four years of marriage, her and her husband divorced. A series of situations and choices led Linda into the unstable and dangerous lifestyle of regular heroin use and relying on the income she could get from working as a prostitute. After leaving the Waterloo area, Linda moved to Toxteth, the borough of Liverpool made notorious by the race riots of 1981. In 1988, little had improved in the area, with drugs and crime both being high and gang controlled. There were still significant racial tensions and the sense of a loss of community and it was against this backdrop that Linda set off on the 17th to Canning Street in the Georgian quarter of Liverpool. Linda didn't have far to go. Her flat was on Canning Street. Canning Street itself is named after the former British Prime Minister George Canning, a 19th century Eurosceptic who, in 1809, fought a duel with a fellow Conservative cabinet member, Lord Castlereagh. Castlereagh was wounded in the thigh. The name Georgian Quarter stems from the style of the architecture of the time, during which King George III was the reigning monarch. Echoes of the former glory of the 18th and 19th century had faded to dereliction, vandalism and urban dysfunction. The red light zone was regularly patrolled by plainclothes police officers in unmarked cars. At around 11pm on the evening of the 17th, one of the vice squad patrol cars saw Linda working her regular patch on Canning Street. Several other women working the street that night said that they had seen Linda with a few clients. One woman in particular recalled being approached by a man whom she described as being 5 feet 11 inches tall, that's around 1 meter 52, aged in his late 20s and wearing a white polo neck sweater. The man carried a bag which the woman later told police made a clanking sound that made her feel very uncomfortable. This encounter happened at around 11.30 p.m. This same woman saw Linda at around 1.30 a.m. when she warned her about him. After a brief chat, the woman caught a taxi to go home. As the taxi was driving off, she reported seeing Linda getting into a car in Back Canning Street, a side road off the main thoroughfare. She described the car as being dark in colour. Streetlights would have made a correct colour identification virtually impossible. A brown car would appear the same as, say, a maroon one or an olive-coloured car. It is reported that this woman saw only one person in the vehicle, but neither that person or car have ever been traced. This was the last sighting of Linda. Before her death, Linda had appeared on the morning daytime discussion programme, Kilroy, to discuss prostitution and safety. Let's listen to her now. Police in Liverpool wanted us to walk on a deserted street in front of the cathedral, and then they thought about it another a bit more, and they put us back into the residential area. 
Well, I certainly don't Liverpool. walk past when someone's got kids around me. I wouldn't dream of chatting up a man right in front of kids. Not many girls will. Considering her heroin addiction and the tough life that being a street walker is, her physical appearance on the show is that of a fairly normal woman from the late 80s. It's often stated that Alinda appears quite gaunt, but to my eyes at least, she appears to be of a pretty normal weight, and her face shows no sign of being haggard at all. Although it is clear that she's missing a few teeth on the left of her upper jaw. Tough lives can produce physical signs, as can subsistence. What is obvious is Linda's clear disgust at the move to put the working girls out of sight, making their lives more dangerous. From our standpoint today, her words seem ominously prophetic. Linda was well liked by the other women, as well as her regular clients, who all described her as being a caring person who looked out for others, often warning girls about clients they deemed to be dangerous or especially kinky. Prostitution is a dangerous occupation, and many working women keep their eye on each other, and as time goes by, the occupation has become ever more dangerous. There is a perception that the 1970s were an exceptionally dangerous time to be working in the sex industry. But the terrible reality is the level of lethal violence against women working as prostitutes increased dramatically in the 1990s, and even more in the noughties. This is a national disgrace and should be on the front pages of every newspaper. Instead, it isn't even reported on in the same way as a regular murder, although every murder is, by its own nature, extraordinary. And there seems to be a sense of blame on the women who are risking their lives because of their predicament and occupation. It's wrong-headed. The people who are directly to blame for the sudden and steep increase in the murder of vulnerable sex workers are the people who commit these vile and abhorrent acts. Are there so many bitter, angry, emotionally broken people in our society that the sudden upswing in the murder of prostitutes, both male and female, is not newsworthy? There is around 19 miles between Back Canning Street, Toxter and Winnick Lane, Winnick. That's a journey of around half an hour, but it seems that Linda wasn't driven straight to where her remains were found. Once her identity had been established, police began the lengthy and time-consuming process of looking for, tracking down and speaking to witnesses. Appeals were put out in the local press, radio and TV. A witness came forward to say that they had seen a maroon-coloured Ford Granada Mark II parked up in Winnick Lane at around a quarter to six. The car appeared to have more than one occupant. Another witness came forward to say that they had seen a maroon-coloured Ford Granada Mark II also parked up in Winnick Lane at about a quarter to seven. This was just five hours before Linda was discovered. In relation to the site of Linda's deposition, it was clear that the killing had not been carried out at that location. The substantial and excessive mutilation she had suffered had been performed in a spacious area with plenty of room and plenty of light. Linda, it seems, had been picked up for the sole purpose of being murdered, and that her murder had not been some random act, but planned and prepared for in advance of a suitable victim being chosen. But it could also be the case that Linda was murdered by a person with a lock-up or garage that wouldn't be entered by anyone else. 
This location has never been identified, and at this point it probably never will. However, it must be remembered that long cold cases can be solved. Media coverage of Linda's murder at the time is rather patchy on the ground, but the surviving BBC Crime Watch segment on Linda begins with the host, Nick Ross, speaking of police looking for her killer, and he stresses this, or killers, implying that there is the possibility of there being at least one other person involved. This is a terrifying and interesting point to make early in the coverage, but we'll return to that later. Another fact that is often reported in the media of the time and since is that the killer might have been trying to emulate that infamous destroyer of lives, Jack the Ripper, due to a miniseries being shown on ITV about the case the evening when Linda was discovered. What isn't made clear is that the episode being shown on the day Linda was found was the second in the series. The show itself is quite entertaining, if you're comfortable with known historical facts being treated with scant regard, and the characters of the real people being portrayed are all too often nothing like they actually were, which, for me at least, spoils what would otherwise be a reasonable production. Each episode was 90 minutes long and broadcast late on a Tuesday night. The passage of seven days between the broadcast and the savage murder of Linda could give credence to the idea that the killer was, quote, inspired to emulate Jack the Ripper, end quote, as it would have given him or her or them enough time to prepare a suitable location, prepare the necessary equipment and possibly protective clothing before heading out to hunt for a victim, with the TV miniseries being the catalyst for the start of a reign of terror. It's a workable hypothesis, although I don't buy into it. There's too much wrong with it. But I am speaking from the rarefied viewpoint of hindsight, with knowledge the detectives working the case in 1988 would have been very keen to know. With no clear motive, none of her clothes, or her shoes, or her handbag recovered, the investigation became very short of leads. Eventually, the case went cold. The police didn't close the investigation, they scaled it down and down, until it was handed to a specialist case manager who would periodically review it. This would be the situation until the start of 1991, when two boys fishing in Pennington Flash, a 170-acre lake at Lee, just under three miles from where Linda's remains were discovered, saw some objects floating in the cold January waters. On closer inspection, the objects were found to be five black plastic rubbish bags. Inside were human body parts. When the scene had been secured, the required on-site examinations, measurements and photographs taken, the bags were transported to a mortuary for examination. With the body parts out of their wrappings, it became apparent very quickly that the parts all belonged to the same person, a young woman. She was soon identified as Maria Cristina Requina, a 26-year-old mother of one from Manchester. Maria had been working as a prostitute 
to feed and house her child. It was a desperate act of a young woman trying to do the right thing. Her remains had been found five days after she had disappeared on New Year's Day 1991. At some point between her last being seen and her remains being found, Maria had been dismembered with power tools, having been stabbed repeatedly until she died. The parallels between the two cases were obvious to all. Another young vulnerable woman had been picked up from a red light area, taken to an unknown location, savagely murdered, her remains mutilated and then left in the countryside between Liverpool and Manchester. As with almost every murder investigation, the police began with interviewing those closest to Maria, family and friends. It then widened to clients and acquaintances, then appeals for information. But all the leads led nowhere. By 1996, Maria's case had gone cold too, but the similarities of the murder were too striking to be dismissed. Police began to suspect that they had a repeat offender on their hands, so officers took the step to initiate a special investigation unit called Operation Enigma. The purpose of Operation Enigma was to examine every unsolved murder of women working in the sex trade to identify patterns of behaviour, patterns of injury, patterns of victim appearance. They were looking for a serial killer. The Greater Manchester Police began with profiling techniques that were developed in the United States by FBI Special Agent John E. Douglas. The FBI method is as follows, quote, The process this approach uses to determine offender characteristics involves 1. An assimilation phase, where all information available in regard to the crime scene, victim and witness is examined. This may include photographs of the crime scene, autopsy reports, victim profiles, police reports and witness statements. 2. The classification stage, which involves integrating the information collected into a framework which essentially classifies the murderer as organised or disorganised. Organised murderers are thought to have advanced social skills, plan their crimes, display control over the victim using social skills, leave little forensic evidence or clues, and often engage in sexual acts with the victim before the murder. In contrast, the disorganised offender is described as impulsive, with few social skills, such that his or her murders are opportunistic and crime scenes suggest frenzied, haphazard behaviour and a lack of planning or attempts to avoid detection. They might engage in sexual acts after the murder because they lack knowledge of normal sexual behaviour. 3. Following the classification stage, profilers attempt to reconstruct the behavioural sequence of the crime. In particular, attempting to reconstruct the offender's modus operandi or method of committing the crime. 4. Profilers also examine closely the offender's signature, which is identifiable from the crime scene and is more idiosyncratic than the modus operandi. The signature is what the offender does to satisfy his psychological needs in committing the crime. 
5. From further consideration of the modus operandi, the offender's signature at the crime scene, and also an inspection for the presence of any staging of the crime, the profiler moves on to generate a profile. This profile may contain detailed information regarding the offender's demographic characteristics, family characteristics, military background, education, personality characteristics, and it may also suggest to the investigator the appropriate interview or interrogation technique to adopt." End quote. And that section can be found on Wikipedia. We're all familiar with profiling, and some understand the limitations as well as the benefits. The 1990s TV drama starring Robbie Coltrane and Geraldine Somerville as Dr Edward Fitz Fitzgerald and Detective Sergeant Jane Penhalligan made the subject very popular and easy for the public to understand, albeit in the compacted, twisted and dramatically licensed, yet easily digestible TV version of it. Over time, there has been criticism of criminal profiling, ranging from doubts about the effectiveness of the typology of the character of the perpetrator to calling the organised-disorganised dichotomy flawed, as it fails to meet the empirical standards for typology and the reification of a concept. Reification, for those not familiar with the term, is where an idea is given the credit as a fact without it being any more than a concept, an insubstantial, intangible, unprovable idea and lacking in empirical validation. The FBI profiling method also falls very short when it comes to multiple murderers who vary the victim type, location, method of murder and interaction with the crime scene. The most chilling example of this is Israel Keyes. Keyes was an American serial killer, serial rapist, arsonist and bank robber. He was born in 1978 and began his criminal career in 1996 at the age of 18, when he violently sexually assaulted a teenage girl in Oregon. He came from a Mormon family, was homeschooled in the American fashion, and attended a white supremacist Christian identity church. I had never heard of a Christian identity church, so had to look it up. They believe that only people of Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Nordic, Aryan people and those of kindred blood are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and hence the descendants of the ancient Israelites. Which is a bit of a stretch if you ask me. Whether this influenced the young keys is not clear, but what is clear is that he was an intelligent, careful psychopath with an understanding of profiling and forensics. To achieve his goals, Keyes would prepare a murder kit, bury it near to his chosen victim or victims, and then not strike for years. He would then take complicated journeys to and from the scenes, making it harder for police to track him. The style of each murder was different. The victim profile was always different and there were no links between Keyes and his victims. Keyes had shown the world that there is another kind of killer out there, the criminology-aware mimic. It's possible that he was not an isolated case, and that there are many other killers 
who operate in ways similar to this. Whilst there are problems with criminal profiling, it remains a useful tool for law enforcement agencies around the world. By the conclusion of Operation Enigma, the team had looked at 207 unsolved murders from 1986 to 1992, which in my opinion is a very narrow band of time. Fred West began his bloody route to prolific serial killer in 1967 and was killing until his arrest in 1994. Peter Tobin had a similarly long career, as did Robert Black. Limiting it to a six-year window when there are other unsolved sex worker cases either side of the dates is inexplicable to me. Anyway, of the 207 cases they examined, they found that 135 were unrelated. They were random events and shared no great pattern of offending. But of the other 72, they found that the patterns of behaviour, violence and signature could be grouped into 21 clusters of killing that share characteristics. That could imply that there were, are, a terrifyingly large number of serial killers on the loose. Or it could be that men who commit lethal violence against women working as prostitutes are unimaginative, lack creativity and are merely pathetic little men who like to hurt women and do so in a similar way. For me, it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Between Maria's murder and the start of Operation Enigma, there were other murders of women working the streets and an ordinary divorcee. One case that was briefly linked to Maria and Linda was the 1990 murder of Vera or Veronica Anderson. During the early hours of the 25th of August, 1991, on a road that now runs between a series of paddocks to the southwest and tidy detached and semi-detached middle-class residences to the northeast, Vera Anderson was found slumped in her car having had her throat cut. At the time, the area was not as prim as it looks now. It was in desperate need of regeneration. The paddocks and fields were still there, but the rest of the area was primarily derelict factories and the remnants of the old leather tannery that once stood there, giving the road its name. How Vera came to be murdered is a mystery in its own right. Vera had been at home watching television. Her seven-year-old son was asleep in bed, when at around ten past ten, she received a phone call that caused her to phone a neighbour to look after her son while she popped out for ten minutes, after which she got her son out of bed dropped him with the neighbour and drove off. She would never see her son again and no one would see Vera alive again. During the investigation into her murder, which included her pregnant 19-year-old daughter being called to identify her, thousands of statements were taken. Her car and the vicinity around it was carefully examined. Statements taken from locals drinking in the Crown and Cushion in Penketh said that around half past ten on the evening in question, a woman strongly resembling Vera's description had been with a man. 
They described him as white or Caucasian in his 30s or 40s, of slim build with a neatly trimmed mousy-coloured moustache, a thin face with temples that appeared almost sunken. He is described as wearing a fawn or sandy-coloured jacket. It's not entirely clear if this was Vera and her attacker, but the fact she was described as strongly matching her is interesting to note. Vera had left her home without her purse. She had left the television on and had been wearing flip-flops. If this was Vera, that man still needs to be found. If not, then the couple still need to come forward. At the crime scene, there were a few tantalising clues left. There was a length of sash cord, and from several different sources, I have seen this described as a type of rope used to tie back curtains. But there is a different type of sash cord too. It's a narrow rope used in the construction of casement windows. Those big glass and wooden affairs where the window slides up and down to open, rather than swing out or up. Understanding which it was would be useful, as they may hold a clue to the killer's identity. The sash cord I'm familiar with is made of unbleached cotton or fibre and marked with red, green or blue, diamond, spot or other geometric shapes. It's specific to the building industry. A major clue was the discovery of a blood-soaked white cotton glove. This isn't the same type of glove as worn with dinner jackets and a black tie, it's the type used in a variety of settings to reduce fingerprints and keep the natural grease from the fingertips off whatever is being touched. They were manufactured by Minette. In my time as a photographer, I have owned hundreds and hundreds of different pairs of these industrial white gloves. When film handling, both pre and post development, when I was working with the various high quality optics, both lenses and plate glass, they're a working consumable to the industry, especially when film was still king, like in 1991. I have owned many pairs of Minette gloves, and they're really good quality, so I always reserved mine for handling large format film and prints in the dry areas, opting for cheaper, more disposable versions in the wet rooms and areas. Although this seems like an irrelevant tangent, it demonstrates the scale of the problem faced by the murder squad investigating the case. In the 90s, there were millions and millions of these things made. And although Minette is only one brand, they still pump them out in vast quantities. What the police do know for sure is that it had been worn by her killer. It had Vera's blood on it and according to police, had been in contact with both the killer and Vera. There were no reports of an argument or altercation being heard, and yet Vera had been attacked, most likely in her car by someone who used sash cord to throttle her and a very sharp knife to cut her throat, and had had the presence of mind to carry white cotton gloves to eliminate the possibility of fingerprints. There had been a struggle, although not one that would indicate an attempted rape, as Vera was still fully dressed. The killer had pushed her forward to slump against the steering wheel. I believe this would have been an attempt to delay the discovery by hiding the obvious wound and blood stain her slashed throat would have created. 
if this was the killer's first murder, if this was the killer's first murder, he showed amazing presence of mind and a chilling sense of having planned the event for some time. Because it was run down in the tannery complex area, a patrol car went around there shortly before 11 o'clock that night and there were no cars reported in the area. But just after quarter past three in the morning, Vera's Ford Cortina was found with her inside it. Whoever did this robbed her children of their mother and grandmother. Vera's killer remains at large, and although police say they have no forensic evidence apart from the cord and glove, there's been significant advances in DNA detection since then, and epithelial cells inside of the glove could hold the secret to his identity. Let's hope they find him soon. Somehow, this very different case was tied to the murders of Linda Donaldson and Maria Requina. The methodology is very different, the crime scene is very different, the victim doesn't fit with the profile of the other murdered women, and whilst police considered it linked for a while, they eventually decided it was not connected at all. Then, as this case, as well as the others, became cold and undetected, the files were moved to a number of case managers. As time progressed, more potential suspects reared as malevolent men with a hatred of women ended up behind bars, and the review teams took to identifying them as strong potential suspects and began to interview them. We'll look at that suspect list next time on Still at Large. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com still at large podcast. You can join in with the conversations on our Facebook discussion group by visiting Facebook still at large podcast. The theme tune is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Incidental music was written and performed by Russell J. White. Links to his catalogue are in the show notes, and some was created by me. Still at Large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.